because I write stuff on Jenga. And then the kids have to answer questions as they pull out each block. I love it. Wow. Because they go, but the block says when I feel angry, I do. But you have to answer as well. That's the only caveat. But anyway. I drink. What's drinking? I'll tell you about it. (laughs) When you're older and struggling to moderate your emotions, <laughs> this is there's how, a magic liquid. This is, this is <laughs> Problems be gone. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson, and as always, I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Good evening. Hey. So this is a podcast about psychology. We're both psychologists working in different fields and like to get together, chat about research, particular areas that interest us. At the moment, we're doing a personality disorders series. So last week, we had a guest on the pod, Liz Daff, a psychologist who works in prisons. And so we had a chat about antisocial PD and all of the it interesting parts about it. It was, it was so amazing. Fun. Yeah. So today, we'll be looking at avoidant personality disorder. Hunter's going to take us through the diagnostic criteria. But as a quick taster, people with avoidant PD tend to be quite shy, quiet, and sort of have this invisible feeling to them. So you might have noticed someone in a social situation who seems like they really want to be a part of it and are kind of hovering on the edge, looking eager. But then if you try and make contact with them, they pull away, shut down, don't speak to you. That's a classic kind of interaction with someone who's avoidant. They've got a strong desire to interact, but really fear rejection and kind of pull themselves back. Yeah. So on one of the pods late last year, we talked about social phobia, social anxiety. Mm -hmm. And this is perhaps, I think, a very quick way to think about avoidant personality disorder is that it's a very, very pervasive, generalized, extreme version of social phobia. Yeah. So today we'll be covering the criteria of the disorder. Hunter will talk a little bit about the prevalence. Then we're going to have a chat about the difference between social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder. Before moving on to theory, we're going to go backwards and forwards between a few different ideas and then wrap up with treatment. Before we get started, wanted to ask everyone as usual to say lots of lovely things about us on social media and rate, review us, tell people if you like the show. It helps get it out there and we've really enjoyed seeing how many people listen to Liz's interview in particular. It's been great. So the DSM, the big kind of Bible of disorders, groups personality disorders into three clusters. So we've already done cluster A, which is kind of the ones who are a little bit... It's a little bit bizarre, the combination of personality disorders in that one. Yeah, so schizoid, paranoid and schizotypal. Yeah. And then we did cluster B, which includes borderline, histrionic, narcissistic and antisocial. And then now we're moving on to cluster C. So this one has three different personality disorders in it. Avoidant, which we'll talk about today, and then dependent and obsessive compulsive. The core feature of this cluster is this sense of fearfulness and avoidance. Got that anxiety flavor to it. So shall we kick it off with the diagnostic criteria? Yeah. So in the DSM-5, they talk about seven possible symptoms for avoidant personality disorder and you have to have four or more. So it's a pervasive pattern of social inhibition, feelings of inadequacy and hypersensitivity to negative evaluation. This begins by early adulthood and is present in a variety of contexts. Number one, they talk about avoiding occupational activities that involve significant interpersonal contact. And this is because of fears of criticism, 
disapproval or rejection. And the way you would kind of see that would be that they would decline job promotions to avoid potential criticism from others. Mm-hmm. Second one, they're unwilling to get involved with people unless they're certain of being liked. So everyone has assumed that they will be critical unless stringent tests are passed. Mm -hmm. So you won't join a group or you won't join a group activity unless they're reassured multiple times by other people doing it. The third criteria they talk about is showing restraint within intimate relationships because of fear of being shamed or ridiculed. So being interpersonally intimate is just difficult for them and they need this sort of uncritical acceptance Mm -hmm. all the time. And kind of like I think about... Like a hermit crab or something, you know, that kind of like as soon as there's a sign of any any danger, they just retreat. Yeah, back into their shell. Back into their shell. Number four, they're preoccupied with being criticized or rejected in social situations. So if there's any slight disapproving or criticism, they may feel extremely hurt. And it might not even be actual disapproval mm. or actual criticism. Yeah. But if they interpret it that way, they'll, they'll feel extremely hurt. Not just hurt, not just upset, but extremely hurt. Wounded. Wounded, yeah. yeah. And they'll respond to subtle cues that are suggested of mocking, that kind of stuff. Number five, they're inhibited in new interpersonal situations because of feelings of inadequacy. They do desire social life, but they fear placing their welfare in the hands of others. And I think that's a really kind of key thing is that in comparison to, say, schizoid personality, they schizoid personality just don't want human contact. Yeah, that desire isn't there. That desire isn't there. Whereas like avoidance, they they find it hard to do. They might look like they're sort of schizoid, but they don't actually do it. They mm. actually they just can't do it. They find it too hard. Number six, they view themselves as socially inept, personally unappealing, or inferior to others. And number seven, they're unusually reluctant to take personal risks or to engage in any new activities because they may prove embarrassing and they overestimate the risks of a situation. So they might, for example, cancel a job interview because of fear of not dressing right and being embarrassed, Mm. which is pretty extreme. Absolutely. So it's an interesting thing and it certainly sounds very, very extreme. What I found interesting about reading about this disorder is that I think a lot of people have avoidant parts to them whether they you would call them avoidant trays or trays like i think i think a lot of us have can identify with parts of this Mm. and and it surprised me as as i kept reading i thought oh i reckon a lot of people will listening to this will actually identify with some of those feelings some of those feelings and Mm. and as a result i think it's it's quite a accessible interesting disorder even Mm. though i've got to say i before reading about this i it's like I can't remember actually really studying this disorder mm. ever, really. Yeah, yeah, it's not talked about a huge amount. No. No. So uh, we thought that it would be also be good to talk a little bit about that milder end of the spectrum. So people who have traits of this disorder but not the full-blown thing. So as we've, as we've talked about every time we've talked about personality disorders, it can be a longer spectrum, different intensity. You might not necessarily meet that sort of threshold for a disorder but struggle with similar things that kind of... So you can, you can have like a bit of it. Mm. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, but you wouldn't have the label or the intensity often. Uh, so I'll talk through a few things. The first one is that at the severe end of the spectrum, people with this disorder have no close friends or confidants and they tend to Im- avoid interpersonal interactions. Whereas at the low end of the spectrum, they simply feel a close allegiance with family and friends and tends to be a sort of homebody, but they can go out into the world as necessary and deal effectively with the world at large. 
people at the disordered end of the spectrum exaggerate the difficulties and dangers involved in deviating from their usual routine, whereas those in the normal range prefer familiarity of habit and are more comfortable with the known than the unknown. But they don't resist novelty or trying out new things when there are clear benefits. Yeah, exactly. The disordered is hypersensitive to criticism and refuses to become involved with others unless certain of being liked. The normal is simply cautious and deliberate. The disordered fails to share himself or herself socially and may present a false face, whereas the normal is shy and reserved but also truthful. And the final thing is the, that someone with this disorder is most often an underachiever whose social anxiety makes consistent job performance difficult, whereas someone who's at the lower end of the spectrum is more likely to maintain consistent employment but work behind the scenes. Mm. So you can kind of get a feel of that that range, I think. And just to go run through a few of the DSM stats, it's a relatively common personality disorder. 2.4% of the population is considered to have this diagnosis and 50-50 split between males and females, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it's unusual. Usually it goes one way or the other. Yeah, like, you know, particularly with the the cluster B disorders Mm. that we talked about, there was a significant gender yeah, there was a clear Roles line. play. It was kind of interesting. So just in terms of development, it's thought of that there's shyness in childhood that then worsens in adolescence and adulthood. And this is at a time when social relationships with new people occur and are important. Like if you think about like adolescence, mm. that's when you're, you're really kind of developing your own friends. You think about you develop new friends as teenagers. If you're heterosexual, you're interested in the opposite sex. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, that's when those kinds of, or like, I guess, romantic relationships mm. occur, I guess. Yeah. So, it's when perhaps when you would expect to see a problem occur if there's mm. a disorder within uh, social relationships, yeah. that kind of thing. There is a suggestion that it reduces with age, like older age. Mm-hmm. The DSM was pretty clear about being very cautious about using this diagnosis in children. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean I'm imagining that's because there's so much variability in children. Yeah, and also that there's a sort of general understanding that takes time to develop a stable personality pattern. Yeah. You know, that could change a fair bit over the course of development. Yeah. So, it's kind of waiting until some of those major developmental things have settled. Yeah, but, and particularly like in young, young children, mm-hmm. you can be very painfully shy as a child. And, and there's all sort sorts of, of things that cause shyness in kids and adolescents. Yeah. But yeah. It's interesting. So in terms of like next time we're going to be talking about dependent personality disorder and avoidant personality disorder co-occurs commonly with dependent personality disorder. So both have feelings of inadequacy, hypersensitivity, criticism and need for reassurance. But in dependent personality disorder, the focus is being taken care of mm-hmm. versus avoiding personality, which is avoiding humiliation and rejection is the kind of tonal difference. Yep. That, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I did have a couple of notes on some different variants of this disorder that's been proposed. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll just quickly run through them. And just, just generally with personality disorders, there's a lot of writing that does sort of talk about that there's different variants within personality disorders. And throughout this series, you'll notice that we actually haven't talked about that. Mm. I guess when we were, Amy and I were talking about this stuff, we thought, well, look, there doesn't seem to be a good level of evidence for those but in the re- reading i did around avoiding pd there seemed to be a little bit more evidence mm. for these variants so that's why i thought i'd sort of include it and it kind of gives an interesting flavor to it there's a sensitive personality style so and these people are generally comfortable in familiar surroundings thrive in a small group of trusted friends or intimates they do worry about others and need approval 
they're courteous, but they're sort of restrained interpersonally. They prefer situations where expectations of others are well known. You know, and again, you know, don't readily reveal themselves. They're frustrating to others. Mm. And what I thought was interesting is that many of them can be like lovers of art and literature and sort of express their vivid imaginations by being sort of engaged in that sort of artistic world. Okay. Which sort of fits with the people that I've kind of come across, mm. I think. You know, sort of that rich inner life. Yeah. There's like a vigilant personality side, which is they're hyper alert to criticism and deal with others cautiously mm-hmm. and just very highly aware of what's going on around them. And then there's like this hesitating personality style. So the writing would seem to be more pathological. They're sensitive to social indifference and rejection. They feel unsure of themselves. They're unusually wary in new social interpersonal situations, particularly with strangers. Just generally self-conscious, ill at ease. They expect difficulties in relationships, fear, embarrassment. Mm-hmm. So, And then they would prefer to work alone or, if at all, with small groups and with people who've accepted them. And they would be likely to open up once established and then they can be then friendly and cooperative. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, variations were on a theme and you'd imagine if you drew a Venn diagram, that'd be fairly yeah, large be overlap. overlap. Yeah, interesting. So we're going to move on and talk about the difference between social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder. There's a lot of overlap between these two disorders and they often co-occur. So both of them are characterized by a fear of being judged and avoidance of anxiety-provoking situations. But in social anxiety, these might be more specific. So for example, people might be anxious only when public speaking or they might be anxious in sort of romantic situations. There can even be variants of it where people are sort of worried about being judged with things like being observed eating or using a public toilet or things like that. It can be quite specific or it can be across a few different areas. Whereas uh, with avoidant PD, it tends to be more pervasive. This kind of worry about being judged is across the board. It's at work, at home, with friends. It doesn't have as much variability between different situations. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about the developmental aspects of avoidant PD. But people with avoidant PD are also more likely to have had a negative developmental experience than those with social anxiety, so something that happened in childhood or adolescence. The other thing, other difference between the two is that someone with avoidant PD deeply wants connection and acceptance and is distressed by not receiving it. That's not a core feature of social anxiety. It no. might be there, but not necessarily. Social phobics do have connection yeah. with people, so they don't have that intense yearning for it because exactly. they've actually got it. Yeah. And then the avoidance through withdrawal in avoidant PD might or might not be present in social anxiety. So I think something that's kind of misunderstood about social anxiety is that if you're socially anxious, you're going to be quiet or not really engage with other people. But some people will actually go the other way. So in social situations, they'll be quite outspoken to fill the space Mm. in a way that's then under their control and... You engage other people in what you want to talk about so you don't have to risk having the focus being turned on something you don't want. So it's kind of, it can look like someone who's really... you can't tolerate the silence. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So it can look like someone who's quite outspoken and and it might not look like social anxiety. Whereas avoidant PD is characterised by that withdrawal, that kind of pulling back in social situations. Yeah, one of our lecturers at Swinburne University talked about how a lot of lecturers and good public speakers have got very bad social anxiety, Mm. but they learn to become 
practiced yeah. at being a good public speaker, mm. which is then kind of furthers their anxiety because... Because <laughs> then they have to speak. <laughs> because then they yeah. have to speak, they become successful at it. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. And, I, and like, and I know uh, a successful musician mm. and she, I was talking to her and she's like, oh no, I'm, I'm terribly socially anxious. Yeah. But then if you see the videos of her performing, she's amazing. But yeah, you wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. Yeah. So really the, the difference between the two, and there's sort of a couple of different schools of thought about whether they're different in their nature or Mm -hmm. whether it's just a matter of a spectrum. But the main difference is you're looking for a difference in severity, persistence and stability over different situations and over time. Yeah. And that's sort of how you can tease apart the two, but they are very close. So you Mm -hmm. might listen to some of these descriptions and kind of go, oh, that that feels like social anxiety, not the other thing. Yeah, and of course also be an artifact of the DSM Mm. in the way that the DSM has been structured. Absolutely, and developed and and all those things. Through committee, things like that. So. It's always interesting. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through a range of different theories to explain this disorder. So the idea when we go through these different theories is that each kinds of, so we're going to talk about biological, psychodynamic, interpersonal, cognitive, cognitive, that each theory brings something to the flavor of understanding this disorder. Mm. And I think it's been interesting as a cognitively trained psychologist to then go and read these stuff and go, oh, yeah, right. No, it definitely does. Like, and let's not yeah. be so rigid about it. Yeah. So the biological perspective on, uh, I was going to say antisocial, on avoidant personality <laughs> disorder boils down to three key points. First one, anxiety inhibition. So this is seemed to be a core psychobiological disposition in the development of personality. As a child, with those with a low threshold for anxiety inhibition, they're shy, they're in- inhibited and fearful. They avoid new situations, new relationships are difficult, right? And so if your anxiety inhibition was low, then you would become shy and avoidant, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it could be like a a biological constitution. Like a temperamental kind of. Yeah, definitely. Well, see, temperamental is another one. So (laughs) I've (laughs) jumped ahead. So, well, temperament, which is going to be my third one, talks about that shyness is not specific to avoidant PD, but suggests inner shame or self-doubt, which you do find in avoidant personality. Basically, the temperament explanation is that they have a constitutionally based fearful or anxious temperament mm-hmm. and a hypersensitivity to potential threat versus, say, the anxiety inhibition route. Mm. That makes okay, sense. yeah, that makes sense. So the final one that I had, Amy, was that the relationship of personality to physical development and maturation, mm-hmm. which I always find is an odd word, maturation. It is an odd word. It- like development of physical abilities yeah but it kind of maturity i I always think of plants or animals more than i know we're animals but you know more than humans (laughs) (laughs) Uh, something about it doesn't work i mean basically the relationship between the biological and the social i think i like quite like this explanation because i was quite uncoordinated as a teenager (laughs) so so if you have slow or uneven physical development then this can lead socially to teasing from your peers Mm -hmm. And that could compound a deep sense of awkwardness or inferiority that you may have, right? So if you're already self-conscious and you get this happening to you, that could elicit an avoidant pattern. And then if you have parents that respond to atypical development with mm-hmm. embarrassment or disappointment, then it's compounded further, yeah. if that makes sense. So a parent who expects their kids to develop rapidly mm. may express anxiety about any deviation or shortcoming. Or a parent might feel shame or express shame in response to a lack of achievement. Yeah. What's kind of interesting is that you could have a high-achieving parent, mm. say an athletic father, 
but then like a normal yeah. or normal child in terms of skill or like just a bit below the norm mm-hmm. because they're uncoordinated lanky. Yeah. But that disparity could then result in negative judgment that the child then feels. Makes sense. Right. Or another one, that you might have like a normal IQ daughter. Yeah. But like a professor mother, mm. highly successful, who's got like a high IQ and high ambitions for the daughter. And the mother becomes disappointed when the daughter brings home Average marks, right? In doing um, childhood IQ assessments, a lot of them, that's a common pattern. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. parents becoming worried that their child is behind at school or below where they should be and actually they're normal or normal to sort of high average. Yeah, right. And Smack back in the bell curve, yeah. Yeah, gap in that perception about where they should be at. Yeah, and so the, the shame that's avert mm. or inadvertent is expressed by the parents and that results in the child feeling defective or incompetent, right? Makes sense. And then even if the child is actually performing above the norm, mm. but it's that relative thing. So in both cases, the child receives the message, you're not good enough to be my child. You've not become what I wanted. It's a chore to love you. Mm. The child then kind of becomes avoidant, learns to be fearful of human interaction, things like that, because they're being judged harshly, that kind of thing. Makes sense. The other thing that I thought of as you were speaking about that was about the research that's around adolescence and socially fitting in Mm. and about puberty and development. So girls who hit puberty earlier tend to have more social ridicule and um, shame and don't tend to fit in as well. Whereas boys who hit puberty earlier have the reverse. They're the popular yeah. kids. Yeah. And there's something about that kind of interaction between biological changes and then social expectation social of world. who you're supposed to be yeah. as a teenager or as a kind of early teenager. It's quite interesting. So you're going psychodynamic? <laughs> yes. So from the psychodynamic perspective, they originally thought that avoidant PD should be clustered with schizoid because of that kind of social withdrawal. So it was considered as the non-psychotic schizoid disorder. So the psychodynamic perspective thought that people with this personality disorder were isolated people who had been artificially withheld from human contact. So it wasn't that that they withdrew themselves initially, they'd been held back by others or by circumstance. And then as a result, they suffer from this need for human contact but not being able to get it. The other psychodynamic theorists thought that it was about having a phobic personality, so someone who was just by nature kind of fearful of a whole range of different things. Then it kind of moved on to the ego analysts, so things like people like Horne, who described a detached type. So the idea being that if I can withdraw, nothing can hurt me. So it's kind of a protective way of interacting with the world. But instead of it actually being protective, people begin to sort of hate themselves and believe that other people feel the same about them. So they start to think that they're separate because there's something wrong with them rather than it being a choice yeah. to withdraw. I mean, that, that's a pattern we see a lot, isn't it? That mm. when when people have no other explanation for something, then they blame themselves. Yeah, a lot of childhood circumstance because kids tend to be more focused on their own perspective. They assume that whatever's happened in the world is their fault. Yeah. Regardless of how likely that is. Yeah. It's kind of or, their first step. Or even, or even explanations yeah. from parents or whomever yeah exactly so the central goal of this kind of avoidant pattern is then to deny anxiety and discomfort 
So to kind of compensate for that withdrawal from the rest of the world, there's then a role of fantasy and imagination to be able to serve the needs that aren't being met interpersonally. So you often find that people with this disorder fantasize about being in like an ideal relationship or something like that. And that then serves to, I guess, as a band-aid for what's missing mm. and kind of fulfill that intellectually. Yep. If the fantasies aren't able to be used or it kind of gets interrupted, then they can become flat and shut off because yep. they're missing that thing. Uh, so this perspective talks about anxiety in avoidant PD as reflective of internal conflicts. So it's a conflict between affection and mistrust of others between a strong desire for success and strong doubts about their competence. So it's kind of this tension between the two. And what happens is that they become disconnected from both themselves and their own needs and other people. In terms of their focus of how this develops in early childhood, they talk about how they've internalised parental standards of high achievement and blame and shame for small mistakes. So you have to do really well and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. It's your fault. Yeah. So they have what in a psychoanalytic perspective is called a highly developed ego ideal. So the ideal of who you should be. Yeah. The ideal version of yourself. And then an intensely judgmental superego. So there's lots of rules of how you should do that. Yeah. There's lots of boundaries and constraints. You should only do it in this way. Which is kind of like the complete opposite to antisocial PD. Which Absolutely. Which is where they have no ego ideal and no superego. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. And then the final thing is that they highlight that the emphasis on standards of behavior on all of those rules can then leave, lead to compulsive traits. Yeah. Because... Everything has to be just so to be able to get to where you need to go. Yeah, that's the psychoanalytic take. Yeah. So I was going to go to interpersonal. So the theorist Benjamin, which is a she. Yes. <laughs> which I kept finding was very confusing <laughs> as I was reading it. Benjamin's and it also feels oddly casual when you're reading it. Like everyone else is referred to by surname, but Benjamin. Benjamin. <laughs> so her model describes the development of avoidant PD begin life with normal healthy attachments mm -hmm. so this accounts for their wish to enjoy interpersonal relationships and have genuine intimacy but as they grow caretakers exert control with a focus of creating an impressive and admirable social image and again sort of what you're talking about you know, casting mistakes and imperfections is extremely embarrassing mm -hmm. to the family might make comparisons between child and other siblings, right? Mm -hmm. So as a result, the child then conceals anything that might be seen as imperfection or anything that could be fuel for ne further negative commentary. And they become hypersensitive to possible mistakes and so, so they fear negative evaluations of others, right? So that fear just develops over time. You know, because if you're getting criticised by your caregivers, mm. then you would expect to be criticised by everyone else. Right? Yeah. Avoidance can be then shunned by their family or might be shunned by their family and so they would develop feelings of shame, you know, so they're not welcomed by their own group, so mm -hmm. they go it alone. They then develop like a sense of autonomy that's linked to punishment. They fear being left out or shunned and they're more likely to be overlooked for invites to family reunions and as a kid, their friends and siblings' birthdays are celebrated, but not theirs. Yeah. It's a kind of flavour. So they withdraw and avoid before they can feel this shame. So it's kind of both a function of other people rejecting or kind of forgetting about them yep. and then their own avoidance and those yep. two things kind of meet. Yeah, and like, and so you could imagine that be self-perpetuating mm, because absolutely. they wouldn't ever say, oh, you know, it's my birthday and yeah. let's, like, let's do something about it. It would be, uh, oh, little Billy doesn't want to do anything about his and birthday. And it's like, oh, no one remember my birthday, yep. but compounded yep. a lot. 
interesting, they still try and win over the caregivers and the caregivers kind of give this message that the family will be the only source of love and support. This kind of becomes this message of, well, we'll tolerate your flaws, but no one else will. So you mm. need to stay in the place where you have a chance of feeling safe. Yeah. So they're caught in this dysfunctional environment, if that kind of makes mm, sense. It does. And they seem to think that most avoidant personalities develop because of repeated exposure to development experiences that instill a sense of shame or mm. low self-esteem. So just a little bit of a trigger warning. I'm going to talk a bit just like very quickly about trauma. But what they seem to think is that with childhood trauma, so this is things like incest or sexual trauma or physical abuse, that this might result in like a lifelong pattern of social avoidance mm -hmm. and interpersonal fearfulness. And that can look quite like an avoidant personality mm. disorder. Yeah, that makes sense. And just continuing on with this topic. So for a sexually abused child... They frequently feel ashamed. So they feel and that they have something to be ashamed of. A perpetrator might do this, might sort of might go out of their way to make the child feel that way. Or the family might reject them or might find out about mm. the assault and then communicate that, you know, well, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. This happened. And the feelings that result were, you know, like, if I weren't defective in some way, then this wouldn't have happened in the first place. Mm. And then you very quickly could see how that person would become avoidant of Absolutely, it's very protective. You're very, very protective. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to kind of, in those cases, is that a true avoidant PD mm. or is it just PTSD? Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose, I, I think from doing a bit of work with people with social anxiety and who also had traits of, if not avoidant PD, there often was trauma. And there was often really clear early memories of being uh, made to feel ashamed or rejected or things like that. And it was even more confusing if the person who was, I guess, responsible for the trauma was a caregiver. Because mm. it just further compounded that feeling of, well, they're supposed to care for me. And even they think that there's something wrong with me. Mm. That kind of that kind of thing. But it's tricky to tease it apart. And I guess it's, in a way to me, it feels like another argument for that disorder that I really wanted to get into the DSM, the um, developmental trauma disorder, which yeah, right. they gave a good shot of last time to try and get in. The DSM-5. Yeah. Yep. And it was proposed by a bunch of people who focus on neurodevelopmental trauma. And so the impact of trauma on brain development and social development in childhood and yep. how that then continues throughout the lifespan. So it sounds a bit too evidence-based for DSM. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I think that's why it didn't go in. But it was great because it was kind of looking at the whole different ways that trauma can express in terms of interrupting those kind of relationships or interaction with the world yeah. without perhaps fragmenting it because you could see how a whole bunch of different personality disorders or things could fit into this one kind of response to a traumatic yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I guess you could definitely have PTSD and mm. avoidant personality disorder. Yeah, there's two different symptom clusters, mm. but but the trauma is the core. Mm. The core exactly. Problem. Yeah, that's what I had for interpersonal. Mm -hmm. So my last one, theory-wise, is cognitive. There are two parts to the cognitive perspective. There's the processing of information and then the core beliefs and schemas that go along with this personality disorder. Yeah. So in terms of the first part, the processing of information, the key element of this is that in avoidant personality disorder, there's often a lot of hypervigilance. So people with avoidant PD are constantly scanning for danger and they tend to pick up on incidental actions and then reinterpret them as reflective of rejection. 
So an example of this would be being at a party or something and seeing people laugh and thinking that they were laughing at you. Yep. When perhaps they were laughing at a whole range of different yep. different things. So like, say, looking at your manager in a work meeting mm. and her not looking that great when she looked back at you and going, oh, she just thinks I'm terrible junior yep. psychologist. <laughs> and then that person, hypothetically, you goes up to the manager and says, oh, how are you going? And says, oh, I had the worst drive in. Yeah. <laughs> hypothetically. Hypothetically. Like that, but definitely not that. No, <laughs> Yeah. So this means that their information processing system is overwhelmed and flooded. So when everything seems dangerous, there's no mental space to process things in depth because you're constantly looking for the next thing. The only option is to withdraw to a safe place. Or the other alternative is that you're left with a flood of vague, dangerous sensations. There's sort of a feeling of, I'm not safe, I don't know why. So the cognitive cycle of this disorder is self-perpetuating. So if you're chronically scanning the environment for danger you then expect that there's going to be dangerous social cues and so you misidentify things. This then leads to an increase in anxiety and reduced ability to process information because mm. you're kind of overwhelmed. Yeah, because when you're anxious... You can't process. You then just start processing everything in terms of threat. Exactly, it's right. sort of scattered. Uh, that means that nothing's processed in depth and everything is seen as threatening, which means that you then flee the social environment which then triggers and confirms the expectation of shame, embarrassment or humiliation. You know, I can't be in a social environment, which then makes them search for more cues that are proof of this in the next social situation and so on. So, a vicious cycle. So yeah, to in- is it already, you can see treatment-wise, be like, so don't do that. Yeah, yeah let's disrupt <laughs> it. <laughs> so, to try and interrupt this just as sort of natural instinct. Drinking. <laughs> and it's not on the treatment plan. <laughs> Uh, They tend to use a range of cognitive strategies that commonly involve introducing irrelevant thoughts and emotions. So it's kind of like if you, you know, you're constantly looking around the environment and you go, I'll just think about what I'm going to have for lunch. I'm just going to think about this. And so what it means is that everything becomes scattered and tangential. You can't follow anything through because as you're trying to think of what to have for lunch, the next threat comes in, the next sensation, and then you're disrupted from that. And so it can mean that their thought patterns can feel more in that kind of cluster of schizoid, schizotypal, that sort of thing where it doesn't quite make sense, mm. how it jumps between different things. And you things. can imagine as a therapist, you'd be sitting there thinking, I'm finding this difficult to follow. Yeah, exactly. And like, but usually as a clinician, the feeling is it's probably more kind of going like, am I going mad? Like yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Like, yeah. How am I missing this? Like, like we'll go have a session like, what, what did we talk about? Mm. Yeah, exactly. You know, this perplexed, confused feeling. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So you can see how it would impact both their clarity and planning their own actions and what they want to do, but then also their ability to socially interact. Yeah, I was going to say like... Because you like, can't do the reciprocal yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're too scattered. Yeah. They then would come across other people would be like... Pull back. Or like... Like, or confused. It's like, this is really weird, man. Like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, and then they'd feel rejected. Yeah, because they were rejected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in terms of core beliefs and, I guess, kind of patterns of those thoughts, the in the book that we've drawn from, there was a really satisfying flowchart. I don't know if you came across that as well. No. But kind of stepped through core beliefs into then sort of... Was it boxes and arrows? There was boxes and arrows, <laughs> yeah. But, you know... In, in lieu of the, the flow chart, I'll just quickly describe what was in the boxes. Sure. <laughs> so, 
So the core belief in this personality disorder is that there's there's two. There's I'm inept, worthless, inadequate, and then there's others are always evaluating me. So this means, therefore, that I have to interact with others in a particular way or they'll reject me, or if I attempt something, I'll fail. Therefore, I should never interact with anyone unless I'm sure that I'll be accepted, or I'll put up a false identity and not share my true self, or to avoid negative evaluations, I won't try anything new. So mm. there's kind of these beliefs and then kind of compensating actions that yeah. try and avoid those beliefs from feeling true. Yeah, and I did some reading in a, in a book by Beck and they talked about uh, that not everyone who's got a critical family develops avoidant personality disorder. Mm. It's when you have the, if this person treats me so badly, then I must be a bad person mm. belief. Yeah. If you have that core belief. If I don't have friends, then I must be different or defective. Mm. If you have those core beliefs, then then you develop the avoidant pattern, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So it's not just like, oh, I have a critical family. Mm. So now that we've finished, talking about the theories and the different kinds of theories and given the flavor for all that kind of stuff. We wanted to talk about therapy, doing therapy with avoidant personality because apparently it's one of the most common personality disorders mm. in therapy, which I kind of thought was ironic given its title. <laughs> yeah, say. definitely. Um, and I was actually a bit surprised by that. Like I would have thought that given that they were socially avoidant, they wouldn't mm. present. But uh, I think as I was reading through this, because at first when you know, when we were due to start reading about this, I thought, I wonder if I've... It didn't immediately stick out to me that I'd worked with anyone with this disorder. Mm. And then as I was reading things, I think that probably a fair chunk of the people with social anxiety that I've worked with or who are attending a social anxiety group actually had this as a comorbid mm. um, condition. And then that kind of flipped the lens for me and kind of like oh, I have actually yeah, done I, this and it was the distress with social situations or the fact that other people were saying well you're so distressed going to work you really need to get some help other people kind of push them into getting some help yeah, interesting. rather than them looking up where they could go to a social anxiety group or have therapy for this yeah, and then right. following it through it was kind of other people going come on now this has gotten too much yeah yeah yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't have that uh, experience reading this, mm. but I certainly did wonder whether I worked with a lot of people who had uh, traits of mm. this disorder, mm -hmm. and I just thought, oh, well, they're socially anxious, and sort of not really thought about APD. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's not as much on the radar. No, because mm. I guess it doesn't seem to be that as problematic from yeah. a everyday worker as a psychologist yeah. like oh this is going to be a difficult person because really it's about engaging this person and probably they're not going to report the intensity of distress like someone with social anxiety would mm. or like a cluster b yeah yeah there's a bit more of a because they're worried about being judged they might not say i'm i really want a relationship but i'm incredibly anxious about this like I'm wondering whether the avoidance comes into see, how no, issues see, I, are presented oh, I think it do actually does <laughs> yeah. I'm going to talk about that so I was going to talk about therapy traps yeah go for it and then you're going to talk about therapy per yeah. se but I had some notes written for therapy and they talked about needing to elicit the negative automatic thoughts mm -hmm. about the therapy relationship yeah and so Negative automatic thoughts is this key cognitive therapy term. When you, whenever you get anxious or whenever you get sad or angry, mm. there's usually some kind of thought or image process going on. Mm. And we conceptualize it as the thought comes before the emotion mm. and then you have a behavior 
that goes along with that. Now, there are probably some argument as to whether that's really the case. Mm. And if you look at a small child, they have emotions before they yeah. have language, yeah. right? So when you do a lot of therapy, you then come good at picking up what your thoughts are. Mm. So that's the theory. But in therapy with a, someone who's got an avoidant personality, they would be on the lookout from criticism from the mm-hmm. therapist. So the thought might be, you must think I didn't do the homework well. Yeah. Or it might be disgust. You, the therapist, must be disgusted with me every time I cry like this. Mm. Or they discount. So they'd be like, the therapist only likes me because they're a therapist and they're trained to do so. Yeah. So as a therapist, you look for the change in affect. And so you might say to them, well, are you predicting what I'm feeling right now? Mm. Or at the end, you're like, were you aware today of making assumptions about my thoughts and feelings? Mm. What about when we were discussing the homework? Yeah. So being quite direct about it. And Which it, I think some people find really difficult because it's kind of opening up the door that you might be given negative feedback. Like as it's an interesting As a clinician, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one and I'd be curious about in – our recent training, there was a bit of a focus on that kind of interpersonal approach. But yeah. I'd be curious whether how often that's taught at other universities about whether that kind of interpersonal process stuff is taught much because it can be so incredibly I, yeah, powerful. So, I, yeah, I said I, when I did my doctorate, yeah. so my first postgraduate degree, um, <laughs> the, that wasn't taught to me at all. Mm. It was very cognitively driven. Yeah. And, I mean, it's interesting. Like I as a junior clinician, a training clinician, I think I would have found that challenging to mm. ask now. I just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and perhaps I, it comes down to therapeutic approach as well. Like yeah. I'm quite happy to ask those kind of questions, but I ha- know I have colleagues who they have to work up to being able to ask those questions. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it also depends on, it can depend on the client as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. But that, that can be more about, I'm, not, I'm worried about how I'm doing with this patient. Mm more than or that I find them intimidating for some reason yeah. or something like that. So the way that you can address this as a therapist like is actually just addressing them by being honest, giving them direct feedback. And because people who are socially anxious mm. and avoidant, they will be extremely good at reading yeah. emotions. <laughs> yeah. So what was taught to me when I was working in drug and alcohol was you gotta be real. Absolutely. Like, because your patients will see through you, mm. right? And if you're not, if you try and sort of cover it up, then you break that relationship a little bit because yeah. it kind of distances yeah. the two of you. Like, and if you and if you say, yeah, you know what? Look, look, I was I was a bit shocked when you got upset. Yeah, but you then kind of give a clear reason as to why it was. Mm. Well, like I wasn't actually my mind was elsewhere and mm. I just didn't realise that it was affecting you so much or it might be as like you know no actually I really do like working with you mm. and it's because of this reason and so you might actually end up having to disclose a bit more yeah you know in a limited kind of way and I think it's just about learning how to do that mm. really when you can do that with someone and be genuine then the the trust does really really build absolutely and then they also kind of talk about the good cognitive therapy books that it was. <laughs> talk about you draw attention to past events where you've worked, if you've been working with someone for a while, and say, well, how did I react when you were late to mm. the session last time? Did that affect anything? Mm. Like, and we've been working together for a while now, so you know, you, so you would call them out on specific events. Of, oh, you must hate it when I don't do the homework. It's like, yeah. oh, or like, so I had an example where I was working with someone today. And they hadn't done the homework, mm. but that improved. Yeah. And and they apologized for it. And I said, well, but 
you improved this week, mm. didn't you? And yeah. you felt better this week. So yeah. and yeah. so do you think that doing the homework do you think that would have made you improve more or less? Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a really good way of breaking that a bit. Breaking that and kind of going, well, look, you can apologize for it, but like, do you really need to? Mm. So one of the things that happens is that therapists can get frustrated with an avoidance because mm-hmm. it's slow work. It can be a challenge to keep them in therapy. Mm. They can, and that can trigger hopelessness that the therapist has about doing the work. Mm. And one tip that they had was like, well, you know, if someone is avoiding doing homework, well, you can use that as fodder for therapy. Yeah. So that's actually fertile. That's informative. Well, it's quite yeah. fertile ground. Yeah. It's like it's a real-life example of yeah. them avoiding something or other and confronting that, mm. being confident in doing that as a therapist. Kind yeah. Of going, yeah, no, let's talk about that. Mm. The other notes I had around it was the traps around therapy mm-hmm. for avoidant personalities is that, you know, therapy requires discussion of thoughts and feelings. Focus on the self. Which avoidance avoid. Mm-hmm. So it's they, a threatening proposition. Yeah, they f- they flee shame and humiliation. So mm-hmm. they have good defenses to block feelings from the awareness. So to be about learning how to kind of navigate that. Mm. What would I like to change? What would you like to get out of therapy? Evan Yalom, his famous phrase is, what ails? Mm. That would just be a terrifying question. Yeah. Patients might drop out or they might never present. There would be a need to communicate to them that, you know, the therapist is different to others. You would need to communicate to the patient that the therapist is different from everyone else. Everyone else is seen as a pain fountain of negative evaluation, (laughs) was the quote. So, and that drives their reluctance to share. So, you know, Mm. you would would need to prove yourself and I would imagine you would continually need to prove yourself as a therapist. And I would also imagine like you'd want to, as a therapist, want to be really fallible, Mm. perhaps turn up a bit untidy or... Did I ever tell you what I did in the first social anxiety group that I facilitated that was an accident, but that I think had that effect? Yeah. So I'm, I'm quite a clumsy person and uh, came into the room and, you know, we got everyone to sit down and co-facilitator was kind of doing things. And I sort of half leaned back against the wall and you know how whiteboards have those little shelves yeah turns out if you flick them underneath they come off and everything (laughs) goes flying immediately did that and there was lots of crashing and banging and whatever and it was one of those moments of having to instantly kind of instead of getting really embarrassed and kind of perhaps the way that I wanted to kind of showing that embarrassment a little bit but then recovering and kind of going see we all do embarrassing things and having a bit of a laugh but it's just both a bad and a good way to start a social anxiety group. <laughs> it was, it, was it good to be able to like laugh at yourself? Do you think that that's it was, what it was? And I think it cut the tension a little bit because yeah. it wasn't like we were people who were perfectly in control mm. of how things were going to go and what was going to happen. And I think psychologists often feel very comfortable portraying themselves that way. Yeah. Which is quite threatening if you feel like everything's falling apart. It's sort of like yeah. I'm si- I have to sit across from someone and tell them what's not going well for me when apparently they're perfectly comfortable in the world and yeah. so comfortable that they're willing to talk well, about I my mean, things. I think it kind of cuts both ways though. Like yeah. You want someone who's capable enough you to want be able some- to help you. Yeah, you want someone yep. who's competent, <laughs> yeah. right? And you want someone who's... Competent but not it's flawless. Like, it's like, yeah, it's like, like, yeah, it's like I can... Whatever you've got, I can take it. Yeah. And I will and I will and I will hold that for yeah. you. I can manage out. this group, but I'm gonna knock things over. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. like and that's this sort of like this tension of being a therapist, of being a good therapist, mm. is being able to kind of navigate those two things. Yeah. And kind of being genuine, but then also 
having those boundaries. I mean, a bit like mm. what we talked with, with Liz last week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So two key problems. The patients monitor everything. So mm-hmm. if they sense a negative evaluation, if you're impatient, you criticize, you attack them, they'll withdraw or they'll be so afraid of disappointing others that they'll fake progress. They'll say what the therapist mm. wants to hear and then they'll set themselves up to drop out when they cannot maintain that any longer. Yeah. Right, so that might be two sessions in, that might be ten, mm. and then the therapist will be confused or something. It's like, oh, I thought this was going well. Yeah, they were diligently doing everything and then stopped. Yeah, yeah. The couple of tips they have was suggesting that the client is taught or told that they can give feedback, mm-hmm. that the therapist is going too hard, that and that this won't destroy the relationship, mm. and that in every other relationship they fear is you know they fear punishment. So you're trying to give them an experience of of a relationship where that doesn't occur. Yeah. Right, so you're kind of serving as the antidote to that. Mm. The final trap, trust is the central issue. So they'll test it. They'll see mm. who can be trusted. So they might impose minor frustrations to see what the reaction is going to be like. So they might give excuse to cancel appointments or they'll reschedule to an inconvenient time or they'll no-show and they'll see how, how you respond. Yeah. Are you going to become a part of the negative superego mm. that they've got? Right. How quickly? And if you get critical, hostile, impatient or indifferent, you fail. Mm. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so I think that feeds quite nicely into therapeutic approaches. We've yeah. kind of touched on them a little bit, so I'll kind of be a bit brief. But Lazy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so I'll go over a couple of different approaches. The first one is a cognitive approach. So in this perspective, the first step is to establish safety. So like we've been talking about, making sure that that dynamic works and feels comfortable how would you do that in how would you do that with an adult uh see that's a tricky question with a kid i it's automatic with an adult it takes me a little bit more thinking through but i think for me i'm not too kind of structured when i initially meet someone i kind of let them go where they want to go but provide some kind of boundary um sort of to tell whatever the story is that they want to tell probably in the first session i don't tend to push as much i kind of just you yeah, might ask some probing questions, but it's not as we're going to go in this direction. Yeah. That's the way that I work. But um, And then validating the emotions and that it's tricky for them to get there. So for someone who seems anxious to get there, that's a big thing that I kind of focus on of it's amazing that you've actually managed to walk through the door today. Mm. Let's not discount that. Yeah. How did you do it? How did you do it? Yeah, like, exactly. You know, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think I think I probably ask a lot of questions. Like, yeah. So it's like, you know, is it okay if we talk about this stuff? Yeah. This is where we're going to go. Yeah, asking so, permission is the other one of kind yeah. of like, can I ask so you which, about which this? Which might be, or even like laying out, it's like, okay, so this is what I'd like to do in the session. Or yeah. these are the kind of main things I'd like to do in the session, but mm. whatever else we do, that's okay. Yeah. You, you're putting a boundary up so that they know where they can play. Mm. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. 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 And with kids, I mean, it's all sorts of toys and bubbles. I don't know how you do what you do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's doing other stuff before talking, essentially. Kid stuff, it's having fun together first. Yeah. And then learning that you aren't actually going to sit there and grill them like a sort of rigid medical professional. Yeah. Is the main thing, because often parents will say, we're going to go and see the doctor. Yeah. And so then they arrive thinking, I had someone last week who said, but I'm terrified of needles when she walked in. And I kind of went, we're, we're not going to, there's no needles here. <laughs> uh, and it was then kind of getting those expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, like I've had with the clients where 
they're like, oh, you know, we should get on to, oh, you know, shouldn't we be doing work? Mm. It's like, well, now let's let's spend five, ten minutes just chatting. Yeah, get to know like, one another a little bit. You know, or even if someone that I've been working with for some time, mm. let's just sit. And yeah, dig the press a little. Be- because if you try and force that. It's you, uncomfortable for both of you. Yeah, but the, 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 the five to ten minutes that you might spend mm. of warming into therapy will be, will pay off. Absolutely. Or even, you know, sometimes it might even be 30 minutes. Mm. You try not to do that too yeah. much, but. But for some people, it takes quite a while to warm up. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, trusting the process mm. of therapy, mm. I think is really helpful. Kind of going, it's like, you know what? We're going to get there. Mm. You know, I mean, having a, an eye on what, what, what are we where doing? Where are we going? Yeah. yeah. And like kind of going, you know, like, okay, I'm deliberately going to sit with this and just do this. Mm. I think can pay off. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so once you got the safety down, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> then you can move into things about addressing those thoughts. So the thoughts thing like, I'm defective, other people will mock me, those kind of thoughts. So that's yep. sort of seen as the second step in a cognitive approach. Uh, and then you can add in a variety of different steps and go into different directions. So they talked about things like emphasizing strength to kind of counterbalance the I'm no good at these things but you're actually really good at these other things. Let's work out what they are. What, what, yeah, what things are you actually good at? Yeah. Visualization, so of social situations and exploring what it would be like to do something differently. So, you know, going into a friend's birthday and instead of sitting back and not saying hello to anyone, what would it be like? Imagine what it would be like to go and say hello to someone that you know, mm. for example. Uh, You can also do behavioural experiments of testing things out in the world and testing out the predictions of what they think might happen. So kind of working through if they think that, you know, in that situation the person's just going to turn and walk away, testing that out and kind of sitting with the anxiety of what might, of giving it a go. Yeah. Yeah. And they sort of highlight the that these processes can feel really invalidating to people who are sensitive to rejection because you're sort of actively challenging their perception Mm. of the world. And so, like you mentioned, it's important to track the relationship and they suggested rating it regularly. How much do you trust me at this moment? Mm. Uh, And seeing how that fluctuates and dealing with it if it comes up. Yeah, because like you can say, well, no, no, I don't mind that you were late and then going, but how much do you trust me on that? Exactly. Like, and let's, yeah, like, and then let's work with it right now rather than letting it sit there yeah, for a while. Like, well, what makes you say that? Or like, mm. tell me a bit about that. Or does that, do you have trouble trusting people mm. in other ways? Like, does that, or is that actually just something, <laughs> something yeah. unique to me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then moving on to the interpersonal perspective. Yeah. Again, Benjamin came up, good old Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And she talks about that this kind of sensitivity re- to rejection means that clients might actually prefer to work with someone who works from a more interpersonal perspective or sort of Rogerian kind of perspective than someone who's strongly cognitive. Yep. So someone who's more looking at that, those relational dynamics and having that sort of unconditional acceptance, that sort of approach mm. than someone who is at the strong end of the cognitive spectrum because cognitive therapy can be invalidating yeah like because you're saying well oh so you've just had that thought that thought's a critical thought yeah that thought's not accurate yeah let's replace it with one that is like mm. while that's actually quite effective yeah if it can feel like what well, you're saying my perspective is wrong yeah, yeah. like it, it, it can be definitely misinterpreted mm, absolutely uh so in this perspective the focus is on understanding the disorder as 
being reflective of a whole lot of underlying anger and hurt from childhood experiences. And so therapy providing a safe place to release those emotions mm. and work through them. I'm thinking some empty chair work. Yeah, yeah. So kind of these things are suppressed. Let's actually look at what's going on underneath when you suppress how you're feeling while that avoidance is going on. Yeah. Yeah. From a psychodynamic perspective, therapy involves looking at childhood memories and having a sort of empathetic understanding of the humiliation and embarrassment that they experienced in their early life. So the attention is often focused on the role of parents in creating patterns of self-blame. So how is it that those interactions made you feel like it was your fault? Yeah. Uh, Family or couple work can also be helpful. So in families or intimate relationships, someone else often supports the symptoms. So for example, in a couple, the partner might do the majority of the interacting with the world. So, Mm. you know, they go out for dinner or something, the partner will order, will have all of those, you know, will choose where they sit, all of those kind of things. The partner who's avoidant then doesn't need to do those things because that social function is taken care of in a way that seems quite functional or fits in with society yeah yeah Yeah. and you could sorry just on that you could imagine individual therapy or couples therapy if you start to change that Mm -hmm. and the patient gets better completely shifts the and the relational dynamic then the partner the in relationships what happens is that if you if one person changes the relationship system Mm. will Destabilize, yep. We'll fight it and go for like the status quo. Mm, yeah, try and bring it back to yeah. So where like, it was. yeah. So like in a family, if someone changes, then the rest of the family will fight mm. against them. Yeah, it's a common pattern. Yeah, like often what you see with families, if say the whole family's decided with like with child work in particular, often it's that the family has decided that the issue, um, like not deliberately, but kind of gone. The issue is X child, mm. and that they're anxious if x child stops being anxious anxious, then often someone else becomes anxious (laughs) (laughs) and then it's like hang on a minute no the problem is the other child and actually it's the the way the whole system's functioning but it's sort of it shifts around and can be quite confusing with people kind of going like i thought we sorted out our problems Uh, so it's interesting the bit that i I hadn't heard of before and that I was interested in was that people who are avoidant often have kind of triangulated relationships. So where they communicate through someone else or it kind of adds in that distance and they're prone to having affairs. Really? Yeah, because they get the intimacy of a sexual relationship, but with distance. Hmm. So something that often comes up in couple therapy with people who are avoidant is dealing with the fact that they've had an affair or are currently having one and then working out how to come either you know come back to a partnership where they don't need to use a third person to manage that dynamic wow yeah i read that and kind of went wow that's I, really really interesting yeah cuz you cuz it's it's that classic you know what we we're talking about at the top of the show about the socially anxious person being a good public speaker. Mm, absolutely. You know, yeah. like you wouldn't a, expect it's, someone it's, who was avoidant to yeah, add another relationship. Yeah, yeah, to have a yeah to have another relationship is mm. counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah. But then it makes sense because they're, they're getting what they need. Yeah, but it's distant. You, but it's it's distant. not. It doesn't it's, have the same emotional load. It's, it's manageable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then also it would then support the thing of like, well, I've done something wrong. Yeah, there's something 
and yeah, I'm, and I I'm, should be blamed. And I'm terrible because mm. they really they, they have done it. Mm. And then the last therapeutic approach is group therapy. So this is something that we've got an avoiding group therapy. No one turned up. Again. No one turned up. <laughs> no one spoke. <laughs> so they cartoon of like the superstition. Yeah. And then like it's the thirteenth session and no one turns up. Yeah. <laughs> so group therapy can provide acceptance and a counterpoint to the experience of rejection. So groups often identify positive parts of people that they've ignored about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's people who have common experiences. So they say that in group settings, people shouldn't be forced to participate. So it's okay if they attend and then just observe for a while before being part of the group. So it's not like Fight Club. No. Where it's your first night, you have, <laughs> have to, to fight. fight. <laughs> no, not like that. Opposite. Um, and then they also highlight that you need to be careful of group dynamics. So if you've got someone who's hypercritical, don't put them in the same group as someone who's avoidant. It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and if you do reading about group stuff, then you actually find that people will reenact their family dynamics mm. within a group. Yeah, it's when, really interesting. And when you click to that as a group facilitator, it's it's so exciting mm. as a therapist. Yeah, <laughs> they can be really powerful. Yeah, if if things are managed well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. contained and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah. So have we, I think we've covered everything that we wanted to cover on yep. Avoidant PD. Yep. So we're going to have a little break and then we'll come back with things we came across. See you soon. See you soon. So we're having a break. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are having some champagne because it's Amy's birthday. Yes, lovely. <laughs> Love champagne. Good choice. What's this part of the show? This part is the champagne drinking portion. <laughs> and, I mean, sometimes it's wine, sometimes it's gin. Hear the... Can we hear, hear the bubbles on the... Anyway. <laughs> uh, this is the part where we ask you to kind of spread the word. Yeah, spread uh, the love. So spread the love, yeah. Rate, rate, review the show. Tell someone about the show if you uh, found the show or found the episode interesting. Mm. Twitter, you can follow us at Two Shrinks Pod. You can email us at, at Two Shrinks Pod at gmail.com. But also, make sure you check out our website if you mm. are interested in anything that you have heard on the show. We have links to articles, to the books that we do, um, to the things yeah. we came across. We've revamped parts of the website so mm. you can search podcast episodes by topic yeah which is great if you're a clinician i know of a couple of people who have gone "Uh oh i've got someone who's referred to me next week with something i haven't worked with before (laughs) i'm gonna listen to that podcast on the way to work (laughs) so definitely worth doing or if you just want to know about the random assortments of things we talk about in things we came across where our next segment we're creating a dossier (laughs) (laughs) that's it so thanks and we'll see you soon Welcome back. We are happily sipping, slipping. Good stuff. We only had one sip. (laughs) So this is a segment where we talk about all sorts of random psychological studies that we've stumbled across in the course of looking for other things. So Hunter's going to kick us off with I have no idea what. (laughs) He's very excited though. He's been hiding it from me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's um, (laughs) the reason I'm excited about it is because it's about Survivor. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> I think at this point we'll fade up. This is yes. theme tune. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. And can we do that sound? That. <laughs> oh, I was singing the. <laughs> so. Are you going to sing the theme tune? No. No, it's. Under likes to sing it when it's going. <laughs> I love the fact that there's a guy on a cliff with a spear and he jumps off. Yeah. Can you imagine someone jumping? Anyway. <laughs> The um, Amy, Amy listeners to this show will have picked up that Amy and I like watching Survivor. It's mm-hmm. currently the um, Australian Survivor show mm-hmm. uh, season. They're up to the jury members. Which is always exciting. Yeah, I think they've put the fourth member on the mm. jury. So I got to chatting to the partner of a friend of mine who I've never really had much to do with. Mm. And he's like a massive Survivor fan. Ah. And he tells me that there's like a whole Survivor-like online community that about. does not surprise me. <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't surprise me once I thought about it, but it surprised me. Mm. And there's Survivor podcasts. There's Survivor podcasts. There's Survivor podcasts. Been so, missing out. So, so what I wasn't telling you yesterday when we caught up to watch Survivor <laughs> yeah. was that I, I had been listening to Oz Survivor, mm. which is a podcast, and they do exit interviews with all the. So they're doing exit interviews with all the Australian. No way. <laughs> so I had this I had this drive across the city yesterday. Yeah. Like, so I was like, you know, fifty minutes in the car. Mm. So I listened to a whole lot of them, and and then I listened to a whole lot today as well. How the, long are they? Oh, like like ten minute interviews on nice. the fly. So like really short, sharp. So yeah. Hello to the uh, presenter to that. It's a great. I'm really pleased that you're doing that show. That's awesome. Um, so Oz Oz Survivor. Mm-hmm. So that got me, in terms of the article, I wanted to look up sort of reality TV. And so with research articles, you can see who cited mm-hmm. an article. Yeah. And so I looked up your last article, which is about Survivor. Oh, and then looked at <laughs> And looked who, at who'd yeah. cited it. So I came across Just Harmless Entertainment, The Effects of Surveillance, Reality TV on Physical Aggression. It's by Brian Gibson and colleagues. Mm-hmm. This is published in Psychology of Popular Media and Culture in 2016. Mm-hmm. So, when you watch reality TV, do you think you're impacted? Does you reckon that has an impact on you? Yeah. Yeah, like like in like. You how? mean like in my mood or? No, no, like in your interactions with other people. In my interactions with other people, uh, I would assume that it does. I think it probably depends on which show yeah. and the intensity. Like, I don't watch a lot of reality TV. Yeah, but. Yeah, I think it would colour my interactions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because I think about Survivor as yeah. about manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it is, I think I notice different things. Yeah. That that's part of it with whatever it is that I'm watching, whether it's reality TV or other things. Yeah. That then I, if I've watched a particular show a fair amount of it or in a row, yeah. that then I'll notice things that remind me. Of that show. Oh, yeah, right. And then often then bring that up in conversation <laughs> and then <laughs> away we go. Away we go. Yeah, yeah. right. So I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time. This study, they were looking at the popularity of reality TV programs and they wanted to look at how many of these contain acts of aggression, mm-hmm. mainly verbal or relational forms of aggression. And so they wanted to see whether that affected viewer aggression, yep. essentially. So, what they did was they got 127 college students, mm-hmm. uh, 54% female, and they 
they were randomly assigned to watch surveillance reality TV show that contained either little or no aggression. Mm-hmm. So the show was Little People, Big World or That Little Couple. I don't know these ones. No. And then there's a reality TV show that showed relational and verbal aggression. Mm-hmm. So the Jersey Shore or The Real Housewives of okay. Beverly Hills or violent crime drama. So Dexter or CSI. So yeah. Liz would have loved it. She would have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and what they did is they did get someone to code the episodes that they had so mm-hmm. they could work out whether there was... I mean, they were assuming that within each of the different programs there'd be different levels of sure. uh, physical, yeah. uh, relational and verbal aggression, but they got someone to code that. Mm-hmm. It's great because they have these descriptions of it. Physical acts of aggression include any intention to cause physical harm to another person. Examples of physical aggression from CSI include murder. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Reasonably aggressive. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Relational aggression. <laughs> relational aggression included actions intended to harm a relationship, including withdrawal of friendship, spreading rumors. An example of this was from Jersey Shore. Would be when Ronnie was gossiping how Vinny got pink eye. <laughs> yep. It's <laughs> great. This is academic journal. Yeah. Um, and then verbal aggression was name calling, or mm. when character A said to character B that she needed to lose five pounds. Yeah. So. So they watched a thing and then they got them under the guise of a another, they said, oh, for another study, mm-hmm. we need to do this task. But it was really part of the same study, which was to write an essay on abortion. And then each person was randomly received either positive or negative ego-threatening feedback mm-hmm. from a quote-unquote another participant. It was a really participant. Was it a confederate? <laughs> it might have been a confederate. That's such a great word. It is. Um, and so, so, so the feedback was they would get like this like rating of from minus ten to plus ten mm-hmm. on like organisation, originality, clarity of expression, pervasiveness, arguments, and overall rating. So, so like if you got positive rating, then like they were like nines and tens. Mm-hmm. It was negative. It was like all minus nines and tens. Okay. Yep. And then. <laughs> To add insult to injury, there was a handwritten comment. One of the worst essays ever read, <laughs> I've ever read. Uh, or, like, or like, great essay handwritten. Yeah. So, so this is, they were testing to see whether like ego, narcissistic threat mm-hmm. would explain what is seen. And then, and then sort of the dependent variable is that they participated with a, another participant mm. who evaluated their essay on a 25-trial competitive reaction time task right. in which the winner blasts the loser with a loud noise through headphones, <laughs> right? Okay, yeah, I'm seeing the aggression. The loud noises, you would love this. Fingernails scratching a chalkboard, <laughs> dentist drills or ambulance sirens. And so prior to each trial, the individual would set the intensity and duration of noise that the opponent will receive. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, basically... It's like, so it's kind of like a different version of the old shock... Test. <laughs> but they actually are doing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, quote, within the ethical limic- limits of the laboratory, the participants control a weapon that can be used to blast their opponent with unpleasant noise. Yeah. <laughs> Skipping <laughs> to the results. Um, uh, they weren't shut down by the ethics department. So, basically, hmm. they found that exposure to rea- reality programs that include relational and verbal aggression increased physical aggression. Mm-hmm. Not only in comparison to non-violent family-themed surveillance, but also in comparison to the violent crime. So, okay, yeah. So, like the Jersey Shore and Real Housewives, mm. 
was increased aggression more than, say, the the non-aggressive reality yeah. one and CSI and Dexter. Interesting. <laughs> I wonder if that's about the relatability yeah, well, of so the students, whether I, the, the relational aggression taps into something that they have felt yeah, before. Well, they, they weren't sure why it's happened because mm. like, they said, well, it wasn't the result of increased narcissistic responding, which was to do with the yeah. essay thing. And then they said... Have you watched Dexter? No, I've not watched it. No, because I'm wondering how much they show of the act itself. Because like CSI compared to other crime shows, they don't show... They show the after effect more than the... Yeah, interesting. Mm. They did sort of say, you know, response to other reality programs within this or other subgenres will most likely depend on the behaviours depicted in the programs. Mm -hmm. The subversive relational aggression in Survivor may lead to similar outcomes. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Win. That's mine. That's it. Done. I like it. (laughs) I like it very much. So, um... Have you ever experienced phantom vibrations? Yes. All the time. <laughs> like phone vibrations? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so that's the direction we're going. Yeah, when my phone is not in my pocket. Yep. Yeah. So I've, when it's like elsewhere, yeah. you'll feel it yeah. in your pocket. Like, so like I've had it when it's in my pocket and mm-hmm. when my phone's not in my pocket. Right. So I don't exactly know how I ended up here, which is probably the purpose of things we came across. <laughs> Often there'll be a particular thing that I'll, I'll get a particular bee in my bonnet and go hunting. Yep. But this one, who knows? Uh, so the study is phantom vibrations among undergraduates, prevalence and associated psychological characteristics by Druin, Kaiser and Miller in Computers in Human Behaviour in 2012. This study is a little bit dated in terms of mobile phone use, but as of 2000... And iPhone 3? Yeah. 4? Yeah, probably. But so, as of 2012, 83% of Americans had mobile phones. And at that time, young adults sent an average of 3,200 text messages per month. So, it works out to be over 100 a day Mm -hmm. at that point. I wonder if it would be more now. Anyway. So, they've found that as the rates of mobile phone use have increased, then problematic behaviours associated with mobiles have also increased. Makes sense. So, one form of this is phantom vibration syndrome. The other one is text message dependence. So, <laughs> I'm sure we've experienced both. Uh, <laughs> no so, <comment. laughs> the phantom vibration syndrome is the perception that a phone is vibrating when it's not. There's been little scientific research, but a fair amount of media kind of comments on mm, the impact mm. of phones on that sort of thing. They think the mechanism is that res- repeated exposure to actual vibrations from text alerts leads to a sort of perceptual learning. So we begin to associate vibrations with social connection. And so we're sort of adapting to our environment and kind of going, oh, that that means that there's someone there to connect with. Yeah, right. So it can be considered as either a misinterpretation of sensory stimuli. So I think probably more common with, I would say, people with handbags. Sometimes I'll feel if I'm in a cafe or something and someone walks past, the movement from their feet will make the bag rattle and I'll go, oh, that must be my phone. Or it can be a tactile hallucination, one or the other. They wanted to look into two symptoms of phantom vibration, frequency and then how bothersome it was. And they also wanted to see if there was a relationship between text message dependency, personality, and these symptoms. Great. Yeah. So, just, I mean, just before you get onto that, yeah. Because like, I, I don't, don't have a handbag. So, mm. I was like, it's, it's always my pocket. Yeah. Mm. But I would notice it on my, like, on, like, on my thigh mm. more than my back, like back yep. pocket. So, you're talking about, like, there's a positive connotation mm. 
but it's like frequently like I'm like, oh God. Like who's texting me? Yeah. So it's got more of a bothersome. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a bothersome. Depending, depending on my mood. Yeah. It'd be like, oh my yeah i'm the same it can depend on and also i've noticed that if i'm waiting for a particular response to something yes then if i'm kind of anxious about that response it happens more often to like, me like what kind of response like uh, i keep on getting these abusive text messages from this guy hunter That's weird. <laughs> he's always asking him to do a pod yeah, right? yeah he's just like come on have you done that yet have you done the editing come on, come on. yeah <laughs> No, but you know, if there's something that I'm uncertain about, yeah, right. then I'm I have that more often than yeah, if yeah. I'm expecting a pleasant text message or hey, let's catch up. That, that's why message. I don't have email notifications on my phone. Yeah, like, because good move. That would just fake freak me. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't want to know this thing. <laughs> so as is often done, they accessed 290 undergrad psych students who got course credit. Uh, they had an online survey that included a survey about the frequency and bothersomeness of uh, phantom vibrations, mm-hmm. the big five inventory, and then a text message dependency scale, which I didn't even know was a thing, but it exists. So You don't know the TMBDS? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't commonly use it. Is it something you use daily oh, yeah, in your well, clinical so, practice? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. I, I do a thorough battery <laughs> of, of, of questionnaires when the patients come through. I'm glad to hear it. Someone's got to be evidence-based. <laughs> so the results found that 89% of people had experienced phantom vibrations and 40% had it at least once a week. Uh, 91% of them found them only a little or not at all bothersome. Mm. So it kind of... Wasn't an issue for most most people. People who were higher in neuroticism found them more bothersome. What a surprise. Yeah. People who were higher in conscientiousness found them less, they had them less frequently and they found them less bothersome, but they weren't, weren't as bothered by them. So they did a whole range of fancy pants stats with <laughs> very um, attractive flowcharts yeah the sort where they have the lines and then the number for the correlation oh structural mm. equation modeling yeah yeah so they did a couple of those amos is that anyway, anyway. Mm. Uh, so they found a range of relationships between the factors personality was directly and indirectly related to the experience of phantom vibrations so conscientiousness was the only direct predictor of phantom vibrations and negatively predicted frequency so like i said more conscientious less frequently. Mm -hmm. Uh, The relationship between neuroticism and bothersomeness was mediated by the emotional reaction facet of text message dependency. So if you were... (laughs) What does that mean? Yeah. So if, so you're, if you had a higher level of emotional reaction as part of your text message dependency, Mm. you then had higher bothersomeness about the phantom vibrations, but it went through that way rather than a direct relationship. The neuroticism, extroversion and conscientiousness were all related to the emotional reaction facet, text message dependency. But none of the text message dependency facets were related to the frequency of how often you had phantom vibrations. So it was all around bothersomeness was essentially the issue. And basically all of this beautiful research concluded with it's essentially not really an issue for most people. So (laughs) 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 
meh. If they could have written meh in a scientific journal, I feel like that would have captured the That's vibe. The vibe. Yeah. Good. Yep. So there you go. Let's leave it there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will um, catch you next time for dependent Let's PD. See. Yeah, I think we're going to do dependent and then we'll finish up with OCPD. Yeah. So we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Two Strings Pod. Thanks, Faith.